Hey everyone, this is Dr. Howe. In November and December of 2021, I spent about a month traveling around the northeastern states of the U.S. developing stories for GeoTrek. I knew I definitely wanted to investigate some stories related to Superstorm Sandy that impacted coastal New Jersey and Long Island, New York back in 2012. And I also wanted to cover these massive lake effect snowstorms that impact upstate New York during the wintertime. The topic of extreme weather and climate impacting maple syrup production was not even on my radar until I read about the mega ice storm that impacted uh, portions of upstate New York and Canada, especially Quebec, during 1998. This was a catastrophic storm that produced fatalities, tons of economic damage, but also destroyed much of Quebec's maple syrup production. And that really kind of got the topic on the back of my mind. But this topic came more to the forefront of my mind as I drove through the remote and isolated Adirondack Mountains one night in December of 2021. I was going towards Vermont. I was so remote that my cell phone did not even get a signal. And I think there was only one radio station on the dial. But that radio station gave me some really interesting news that I did not expect. They had said that the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers, this was uh, getting into November, December of 2021, had determined to release a tremendous amount of syrup from the Global Strategic Maple Syrup Reserve that Canada holds almost as a reserve of the supply, very much like the U.S. has a strategic oil reserve and like other groups like OPEC, for example, that uh, really control the, the flow of oil and the production and distribution of oil around the world. I did not realize that Canada had a str global strategic maple syrup reserve and that the decision was made to, to release a lot of that maple syrup onto the market. That I thought was really interesting and uh, became a very current and uh, very relevant story. I wanted to understand more about why they were making that decision and why production was lower than demand if they're releasing maple syrup onto the market. So I began to ask questions about the climate and to look into this deeper. At the same time, I stumbled upon something else that was very fortunate. The Vermont Maple Sugar Makers Association, in partnership with the University of Vermont, uh, was holding the Vermont Maple Conference during the very days that I was going to be in Vermont. And so this was a great opportunity. I was able to participate in the conference and learn a lot about relevant topics related to maple syrup production, including the impacts of weather extremes and climate. The day after the Vermont Maple Conference wrapped up, I was able to interact with Don and Jody Gale at their place in Lincoln, Vermont. They run Twin Maple Sugar Works. They've been sugaring there since 1998. Now, Don's been producing maple syrup in Vermont since the 80s, but they've been in Lincoln since 1998. They're committed to producing a delicious certified organic maple product using eco-conscious me methods. Their operation has uh, grown to a 5,200-tap sugar bush. They're on the side of a mountain using reverse osmosis to concentrate sugar. The system enables them to use solar power instead of fossil fuels. Their boiler is powered by firewood, which is split and stacked by hand. Uh, Don, I found, was very engaging, very knowledgeable, but really a joy to interact with him and to learn a lot about uh, not only maple syrup production, but also how sensitive maple trees are to weather and climate and how that impacts the production of maple syrup. This podcast was recorded with Don live on the ground there at Twin Maple Sugar Works on December 11th, 2021. You're telling me all about uh, maple sugar and, and how to harvest. You said it's very sensitive to weather, huh? Very sensitive. And actually this past season, so typically we start, we start tapping the beginning of February, provided the temperatures aren't much colder than 15 degrees. And 
But once we start tapping, usually by the end of February, most years we'll start drawing sap. Uh, the temperatures get to the point where, you know, it's above freezing, it's sunny, we'll start getting sap. And usually somewhere around the middle of April, April 16th, April 19th, it gets too warm, the trees stop cycling, and it's done. So it's, you really have a window probably less than two months in most years. Oh, six weeks is pretty much it, okay. yeah. This particular last, this year, this past year, was really odd in that we never started, we never got a drop of sap until March 11th, which is like two weeks late. And by April 10th, it was all done. Wow, so you really had like a month, if that. Yeah, yeah. It was it was all done by April 10th. It had the in fact, one thing that was really odd was it was so cold uh, the weeks before March 10th that nothing ran. And then the week of March 10th it started, the following week we had like three or four days in a row where it was sixty degrees and sunny. So it went from really sub-freezing to very quickly in the 60s. Yes, and the, the, everybody was sweating whether we were going to get through the 60-day or 60-degree temperature days because once, you know, typically once the trees start producing buds, uh, the, tree, the sap turns sour and it's of no use for maple syrup. Um, so... We were really concerned that we were going to squeak through. We did squeak through, and then, like I said, by April 10th, it was all done because that that was on a Thursday, and then that that Friday, it was going to be like 70 degrees, and there was no way. I wasn't even going to attempt to collect sap. It's too warm. Degrees. It's too warm. And the bacteria counts. So there's natural bacteria in sap, and when it's warm like that, the bacteria counts multiply, you know, millions, and... And it makes the sap turn sour, and it's it's no, of no use. I mean, some guys will process it. It stinks. It's yeah, slimy. Pretty low quality. Yeah, low quality, very low quality. And Donald, before we started recording, you were saying really optimally we're getting minimal temperatures below freezing in the day, and then it's getting up to maybe upper 40s or low 50s, right? In the Yeah, so like uh, 18 degrees, 16 degrees, somewhere in there, 20 degrees at night, and then 48, sunny, no wind is optimal. And you really need that sub-freezing at night, above freezing in the day to get it cycling, right? Yes, absolutely, to cycle the sap. Uh, so the sap is moving up and down the tree, and without, this, without the cycling, you know, give or take a few days, sometimes it'll, it'll continue running for a few days, but then it'll, it'll shut down. So probably a, it's, it's bad if you have a really cold, like January getting into late February, and then a sudden fast warm-up like we did last year. Yeah, and and a lot of guys this this past season, I don't think anybody collected sap in January, which was really odd because most of the guys will start tapping. The really big guys will start tapping right after Christmas, you know, uh, forty fifty thousand taps. They they have to just because of the volume, and this year there was no run in January. There's typically a January thaw, and they get something. So it really is, what really triggers the sap, the sap to start flowing is getting that thaw and getting those temperatures above freezing during the day, right? That's correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. So this last season, there was a pretty low product. How does that affect the marketing? How does that affect just the, the what's available for the consumers? Well, pretty much across the board, when I talked to the wholesaler, um, he pretty much 
told me across the board, all in New England, the Midwest, all of Canada, were at 50% of a crop compared to the year before. Now, granted, the year before was a bonanza. I mean, it was a bonus year. There was the temperatures were right. The season was long. So two years ago was a huge year. Last year was really low. Yes. Was last year one of the lowest that you've ever seen? Uh, no, I've seen worse. <laughs> Back in the day when we used to do buckets, I can remember setting buckets out on a Monday. And this would have been like the, uh, probably the early 90s. I can remember setting buckets out on a Monday and picking them all up on Friday. So like four days of production and it was all done. Wow. So that, you mean that was the entire season, that, that year? That was the entire season, yeah. And yeah. just to explain the process, when you did buckets, so you had taps in the trees and then they would drip into buckets. This was yeah. back in the day before you had tubing? Yes, that is correct, yeah. And tubing is a little bit more um, forgiving because as long as you keep vacuum running, uh, the, the holes won't dry out and the trees will tend to give up sap for a little bit longer period. Uh, buckets when they're open, you know, the spiles are open to the air and bacteria loves air. So if you're pulling vacuum, the bacteria counts, I mean, they're still increasing, but they're not as high as if you had an open. Oh, so open buckets, you can get more bacteria and you have maybe some issues with quality of the, of the sap compared to tubing. It sounds like it's a little bit of a, a cleaner, safer process. Uh, yeah, the tubing is definitely a cleaner process. I mean, I can remember collecting all kinds of different things in buckets. Yeah, yeah anything it can go in there, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Flies, mice, leaves, you name it. <laughs> right, so you can get debris in there, whereas the tube, oh, and it, it's, it's clean, it's vacuumed. How many taps do you put out now? Uh, so we tap about 5,200. Uh, we put out about 5,200 taps, and that's actually kind of on the... You know, it's big enough for me. It's, um, I mean, going by today's standards, Kreipzers, sugar makers that are tapping anywhere from thirty to 40,000, 50,000 taps. There's one operation up in the Northeast Kingdom that taps about five or 600,000 taps. I mean, they have full-time crews, um, you know, maintaining lines and tapping and all that good stuff. Wow, that's that's tremendous. So it really varies in size from from small operations to much bigger. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's actually sugar makers that only have you know maybe twenty five or thirty taps, and most of those guys are running either open buckets or they're running what they call a three sixteenths line, which kind of creates its own. The, the theory behind it is that it creates its own vacuum. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So you know. Where I'm running five sixteenths, and I'm pulling vacuum with a with equipment, so my electric bill is through the roof. <laughs> <laughs> uh, th so that's really interesting. So how long have you been doing tubes with vacuum? Uh, we've been in this operation. Ooh, let's see. So we started up there about twenty seven years, twenty eight years ago, and I put vacuum in maybe five years after we started. So probably 20 years anyway. So on, a, on an average year, how many, do you, do you measure the volume in gallons or uh, barrels or like what, what unit do you use to measure the well, volume? I, I typically go by gallons because it's a lot, you know, a lot of guys will do it by barrels. But um, so to give you an example, the year before we collected just over 120,000 gallons of sap for the season. 
This past year, we collected about 105,000 gallons of sap for the season. And the other uh, crutch to that was the sap coming out of the woods is typically about 2.4% sugar. This past season, the highest it really got was around 1.8, which means significant more processing time. Um, you know, the ratio at 2.4% sugar is right around 45 gallons to, to one gallon of syrup. And this past season, it was closer to 60 or 65 gallons to one. And with the really big guys, you know, the 30, 40, 50,000 taps, they're tapping trees all the way down to four or six inches in diameter. Their ratio was more like 120 gallons of sap. To one gallon of syrup because that I heard sugar content as low as 0.6 percent. So yesterday I was uh, participating in the Vermont Maple Conference and yeah. uh, there was a talk about climate issues and and maple sugar and someone mentioned about the low sugar content last yeah. year and and there was a discussion about perhaps the drought or dry conditions in the summer of 2020 and maybe led to that. Do you think there's maybe a connection there? Uh, that's pretty much the consensus is, you know, everybody kind of felt it was more an issue of the, the fact that we had a pretty significant drought the fall before the sugar season. The trees just aren't producing as much sugar. There just wasn't the moisture there for the trees to produce the sugar. Have you seen dry seasons like that um, before? Have you seen some, some strong droughts here or do things tend to stay pretty moist? Uh, around here, things tend to stay pretty moist, but there has been other seasons not that I can actually, you know, remember, um, but there definitely has been off seasons before. Have you noticed any trends with like temperature, precipitation, anything like that? Or do you feel like it's just kind of variable, just changing year to year? I think it's just kind of all over the place. You know, I don't think there's anything that's consistent about it. I mean, we'll have, we'll have good years, we'll have bad years. And I can remember one sugar maker quoting that, uh, he said, uh, I can remember a lot of bad years and not so many good years. So, you know, it's, it really depends on Mother Nature. I mean, windstorms, snowstorms. Last year, you know, we had the drought in the fall, but then we got dumped on with snow. And there were the, the snow load this past year was just totally ridiculous. When I went to pull taps, there were a lot of taps that were up around seven feet, which is just almost impossible to get out of the tree just because we were standing on three feet of snow when we were tapping. Oh, so when you were putting them in, you're on snowshoes or whatever, you're, you're up high. Yeah, yeah. And there was the snow was just wicked deep this past. In fact, there were places where I had to dig holes uh, underneath my main line so I could get my quad track through. And So does that give you challenges for accessibility, like just getting back there when you have such deep snow? <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, actually that particular day, I dug a hole underneath the line, got my quad track through, and I don't think I got 100 feet up the trail. And I finally gave up. The snow was piling right up over the front of the ATV, and it was like... You were just fighting like feet of snow, huh? Yeah, it was like back up five feet, go ahead three. You know, back up five feet, go ahead three. And it was just kind of a you know, keep taking a run at it. And it was finally, I just gave up and I strapped on snowshoes and headed up the trail. From what I've heard, snow is a good thing. It keeps things moist, but I guess too much, then you have accessibility problems. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. it looks like you're really running a lot of these lines up mountains and hills. It's pretty steep terrain, right? So you add snow to that, it gets tricky. It's an 800 foot drop top to bottom. 
So we end at 2,400 feet. We start at 1,600 feet. I noticed on the map behind us, a lot of these, uh, it seems like a lot of the lines you have kind of face the same direction. Is that just an issue of like what property you own? Or is there a, um, is there a science behind like what, what side of the mountain you want uh, treetops on? Well, everything wants to run downhill. <laughs> so every one of my main lines on the map are running straight up the mountain. And then all my sap runs run off diagonally off from those. So everything is, I'm trying to channel everything using gravity. Um, and let's face it, I mean, there's days when power becomes an issue. If we have a windstorm and power gets knocked out, I, I still want the sap to flow. I see. So if you can have your line running down a steep hill, it's going to flow, it's going to obviously flow downhill. And I will create natural vacuum up there as well. I've never measured it, but I can create a pretty significant uh, natural vacuum just with that, that drop. I have in the past actually run water down my main line. Uh, that was before the days of vacuum. I ran water down my main line and actually created a vacuum within the lines and jump started the system. And that particular day, before the day, like I said, that was before the days of vacuum, I might have collected 200 gallons of sap that day. But instead, I ended up collecting 800 or 1,000 gallons just because I jump started vacuum. So by, by having vacuum equipment on these lines, I noticed as soon as I switched to a, a vacuum system on my, on my lines, uh, it, the production jumped by two-thirds. Wow, that's tremendous. And looking at the, this map you have behind us, it, it's really extensive. It looks like you have a ton of lines. How, how many man hours does it take to get taps in all those trees? I mean, that is a lot of work. Uh, God only knows. <laughs> I know it. I usually figure somewhere between an, a week and a half to two weeks just to put all the taps in. Is that a team of people or just you? Oh, no, that's a team of people. Yeah. I usually have one or two other guys that are helping me. I'll usually do the first part of the lower part of the sugar bush, the first third, usually by myself. And I figure one main line a day. And that's, I think. Think about 10 main lines. So do you put the main lines, like, obviously the taps have to come out of the trees, but do the main lines stay in, or did, uh, does all of it come out at the end of the season? All the tubing in the main lines stay there. The only thing that comes out is the tap itself. We pull those out of the tree and cut them off and bring them back. And here's another crutch. Most sugar makers, especially the big guys, at the end of the season will take that tap the one that they cut off the line and throw it away. That's a polycarbonate tap. Uh, what I do is I came up with a method for stripping that little piece of tubing off the end of the spout, and then I clean them in a food-grade Clorox bleach water solution and then let them soak in just plain water for like a week and then reuse them. So they're, they're cleaned up, you can basically re reuse and recycle them. Exactly. And, to, at, you know, 22 cents a piece. Yeah, that adds up, plus the waste and, the, and economically, too. I mean, somebody with 40,000 taps, you know, you're looking at uh, $10,000 thrown yeah. away. Right, it makes sense if you can uh, just take the time to clean that and reuse it, right? Exactly. I try to recycle as much as I possibly can. The tubing that we take out of the woods that we don't, you know, that if I modify something and remove tubing, that tubing gets used to go around trees to tie lines off. So 
I'm not damaging the trees with wire. Uh, the other night I was driving through the Adirondacks getting close to Vermont. I, I could pick up like one radio station. It was coming in and out. Yep. And they mentioned a breaking news story that I guess a federation in Quebec had released of maple syrup in Canada, I guess, was released on the market. I didn't know. Obviously, you've been in this industry for a long time. You know about that. I'd never even heard that there's a strategic reserve in Canada. So was that expected? Had that happened before? And then how does that affect the market? Well, the production was so down last year. And this was, was everywhere, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and there is a significant demand for maple. And we could not meet the, the demand. So a lot of that syrup comes from Canada and gets shipped all over the United States. And it's, you know, it's an own thing. Canada tries to make... So if, if they were to release all that syrup all at once at the end of the year, it would drive the price of syrup so low that it wouldn't be economical. The supply would just be so great, right? So yeah. they, they hold some back. Yeah. And the price of syrup would just plummet to rock bottom. And... And that would put everybody in the States out of business. It's basically, in a sense, like a reservoir, like a, like a dam holds water for that dry time. That's kind of what they're doing with the exactly. syrup reserve. Exactly, yeah. Helping yeah. to regulate the And we're amount. such small peanuts compared to what Canada produces. I mean, the, probably the average size operation up in Canada is 160 or 200,000 taps. What I had, they, they really have a lot of the market, right? comes out of Quebec, is that well, right? Quebec has the largest maple... Uh, you know, stand of maples in the whole Northeast. I'll interject here with a little bit of research I did. The Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers claims that they produce 72% of the world's production of maple syrup. Uh, their website shows that they're an alliance of 11,300 maple producers who work in 7,400 maple enterprises, and they produce 133 million pounds of maple syrup per year. A little bit of info on the Global Strategic Maple Syrup Reserve of Canada. It was established in the year 2000. It's located in Laurierville, Centre du Québec. The size of the maple syrup reserve is tremendous. It covers 267,000 square feet, an area equivalent to the size of five football fields. And this maple syrup is preserved in 45-gallon barrels. Right now they have 100 million pounds of maple syrup on reserve at the start of the 2021 season. My conversation with Don continued, and he said, although Quebec's maple syrup production is tremendous, New York State may have a lot of untapped maple production that could increase in the future. Um, New York is a close second, or it might even be more than that. Uh, I remember reading an article a long time ago about the, the amount of maple trees in New York is just mind-boggling. They're just not tapped, though. Are these like wild in the Adirondacks or more like harvested or in, in farm? Everywhere, everywhere, you know, throughout the whole state. When you take into consideration how big New York is the, and the number of maples, it's just phenomenal. It's New York is slowly inching up, you know, as far as production. And it wouldn't surprise me that sometime down the future, unless, you know, global war warming circumvents that, uh, New York could easily take over the total production. Have you noticed a difference in overall production, say like the average year now compared to the average year when you got started in the late 80s or 90s? Or is it just like all over the place, just randomness and you have a good year followed by a bad year? Exactly. It's total randomness. You know, it's it can be five good years in a row and then a bad year and then another bad year and then five good years. In a, I mean, it's just 
all of them? We, we see that in so many different aspects of climatology, whether it's farming, forestry, fishing, whatever. You just see some good years, some bad years. Sometimes it's hard to see the trend. It's just everywhere. It really is. And, you know, we just, it's no different than crop farming, really. I mean, everybody's dependent on Mother Nature, you know, is weather-wise for production. Do, uh, do producers look at like long range weather forecasts and do they change their behaviors based on like, you know how you, we always have the five to seven day forecast, but then there will be projections out. I know Noah has like the six to 10 day forecast and the eight to 14, you know, are people looking out a few weeks trying to guess uh, what to do? And if so, how would that change their behaviors? Farmer's almanac. <laughs> no, I'm only kidding. Uh, yeah, we, I mean, I probably have six weather sites on my computer that I you know, it's like, okay, they're saying this, this guy's saying that. So, you know, going by what one weather station says, you know, I kind of compare to what the weather actually is. And I've come to kind of pretty much rely on NOAA for their their forecast and even then sometimes they're not right either well i'm just curious let's say there was a crystal ball that would give you a perfect 30-day forecast how would that change let's say february 1st you could you would know what it's gonna for the sake of argument you would know march 1st what's going to be happening how would that change your operations though well the 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 thing is the, the longer the tap is in the tree and nothing's going on it you know a tree is really no different than a human you get a you get a wound it wants to start healing it right away. So, you know, as, as the tree senses it's th- that wound, it's going to try to start healing it. But as long as you're pulling vacuum, you're keeping the bacteria counts down. And once the tree senses those bacteria, that hole will dry up. So ideally, you want to put these taps in right before the, t- the sap starts running. So you don't want them in there three, four weeks and nothing's happening. Oh, actually, some guys put them in, you know, three or four months before this actually starts happening. But they might be running vacuum that whole time just to keep the hole dry. So you've created a vacuum inside the tubing so the bacteria can't grow. And that gets, all of a sudden, you're running all that electricity, you're doing all that extra uh, uh, labor and work, and and the amount of time that you're using electricity, right, to pull the vacuum for those weeks where you're not running any sap. Exactly. You know, and a lot of sugar makers will run their vacuum 24-7, and I actually have a temperature control on my vacuum. So once it gets down to, like, 24 degrees, it automatically shuts off because there's nothing moving. Everything's frozen. What if we had a thaw, say like early February, things start running, and then you get a deep freeze? Does it does it just lock up again and then restart button, or is is that bad for the crop? No, that's exactly what it does, and that's kind of a nightmare because all the valves now have sap in them; they're all freezing, so valves start breaking, and so the trick is to try to keep everything drained. Vacuum helps again to some degree, but I've had ice build up in the the releasing mechanism in the vacuum system and then you end up with this great big ice cube and does syrup expand when it freezes like water does no no No, syrup doesn't sap does sap will expand because it's you know it's only two percent sugar the rest of it's all water so you can have uh, expanding uh, sap in the tubes and breaking and things like that so so a thaw and then a deep freeze is is not a great thing uh no not unless you know especially if the deep freeze goes for endless time i mean i've had 
two-inch brass valves split down the middle uh, in, in the sugar house just because things weren't moving. When you look back in time, is there a year that was like the dream year where you just had weeks of perfect conditions and it was just, you know, the sap was flowing? Uh, well, actually, two years ago and probably I would guess there was three or four years, maybe even five years, including not this past year, but the year before, where everything was like, I mean, there were little snafus with equipment and stuff like that, but it was like, oh, my God, production's just continuous. And it's like, wow. These are you a know, lot of calm days, upper 40s, low 50s. Sugar content was super high one year. Um, I mean, I can remember there's, there's a sugar maple out here by the sugar house, and I measured the sap coming out of that tree. It, I had a bucket on it, and the sap coming out of that tree was 5%. I know people who are boiling sap that's run through uh, a piggyback system and their their sap going into the boiler is less sugar than what was coming out of that tree i mean it was just phenomenal that and the, the sap coming out of the woods was 2.4 2.6 you know percent sugar it was just a it's like what is going on? I mean, it was a bonus. Just like, yeah. yeah. It sounds like everything lined up perfectly, right? Yeah, so a, probably very moist soil. Probably the trees were well hydrated, and then you had perfect temperature. And lots of, you know, lots of photosynthesis going on. You know, no bugs to eat leaves and stuff like that. You had said calm conditions are important too, right? So wind is not good? Wind is not good. No, no. Because wind, wind tends to dry things out in a heartbeat. So basically, just the sap won't run so much if, you, if it's really windy. And that's true, yeah, um, especially if it's out of the south. Don't know why, but a south wind, and there's actually a saying, wind from the north, sap go, flows forth, wind from the west is best, wind from the east is least, and wind from the south, I can't even remember what no, it is. No, no syrup for your mouth, maybe, I don't know. Um, man, that's, that's interesting. Um, I mean, there's so much uh, long-term, I guess, memory and, and the amount of knowledge that's passed down through generations here, right? I mean, people have been running SAP for a long time up here. Well, the one thing that's really neat is, um, you know, we have sugar maker schools every year, and except when the COVID thing hit, but... I've always tried to go to the Addison County Sugar Makers meeting because there's always been something that I have learned from somebody else from one of those schools. And it's like, oh, my God, why didn't I think of that? Well, and think of the knowledge, too, that you can share with maybe a, a young sugar maker that's just starting off. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, some of the stuff is like. Oh my God, that's just so simple. Why didn't I think of that? You know, and is there if you could go back in a time machine and talk to yourself when you just got started? If there's like one thing that you learned, I mean, what would you tell yourself? I'd probably try to talk myself out of it. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of hard work. I know my wife would. <laughs> uh, yeah, because I used to work full time. Uh, I was an EMT for 25 years, a volunteer fireman for 35 years, and a scoutmaster for 10 years, and worked full-time and did this. And it was just like, how did I ever do it? You know, and, it, but it is a lot of fun. Yeah, and it seems like it gets you outside, right? It gets you out on the mountain. And I see everything on the mountain. You know, moose, deer, bear, fishers, turkeys. I haven't seen the bobcat. I have seen his tracks. And years ago, a guy from Montana told me that he saw um, uh, catamount tracks 
Really? So uh, I didn't need to know that. But <laughs> have you? Did you say mountain lion? Have you seen mountain lions out here? I've never seen a mountain lion. I okay. I, I have seen bobcat tracks. I've never seen a mountain lion. Um, but this guy from Montana swore that he cut a set of mountain lion tracks. That's interesting. Um, and bears generally are hibernating until the spring. Is there ever a crossover where you will encounter a bear waking up? Nah, typically I see them late fall and early spring. Seen a mom and three cubs. And I usually, you know, every now and then I put a critter cam out and I usually get a picture of one or a, a mom and a cub or... So- well, you know, you're, you're running all these uh, lines of tubing with sap in them. Um, do, can the animals tell that there's sap in there? Do, does that attract them? Do they ever try to pull the tubes off? Do they ever, you know, become a nuisance? Or do they kind of leave it alone? Uh, actually, I made an agreement with the animals years ago. So at the end of the tapping season, when I'm pulling the taps out of the trees, I have a two-and-a-half, three-foot tool that I'm using to pull the taps out. And... Once I pull the tap out, I push my line as high as I can reach. And ever since I started doing that, I get absolutely minimal damage. The only crutch to that is when I go to put my taps back in in February, I have to readjust every single line. But, you know, for not having to fix lines, it's okay with me. So when you go back, let's say this season, will you put taps in the same holes as the season before, or is it a different hole? Oh, it's definitely a different hole. Yeah, you can't reuse an old tap hole. And the rule is you're supposed to be 6 inches east, west, and 12 inches north, south from a previous hole. Give it some space to heal, right? Yep, yep. And the nice thing about the quarter-inch taps is the damage is absolutely minimal. You know, back in the day when we used to use seven sixteenths inch taps, the 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 wound to the tree was it wasn't so much east west. Uh, it wasn't really that much bigger than the seven sixteenths hole, but north south it was probably eight inches, seven to eight inches from top to bottom. So it was kind of a diamond shaped you know wound to the tree. And seven sixteenths was much more harmful to the tree than the, the new quarter-inch spouts. I'm really tickled with these quarter-inch spouts because you can go back. By the following year, all the holes are healed. I got you. And so that, it's optimal, really. You're, you're getting enough flow, but then it's not so big that it, it's healing up. Actually, I haven't seen any difference in flow compared to what we used to use. And the seven sixteenths was so much bigger than the quarter-inch. Right, so you're using a smaller hole, right? And yeah. it's, it's healing up quicker, and you're still getting good flow. Yes, absolutely, yeah. You know, I didn't ask you this specifically, but from what I've heard, you, you get a tremendous amount of sap and that boils down. It, it can surprise people, right, uh, when you start boiling that you maybe don't get as much syrup out of the, the sap. I mean, when you're first, I guess, learning the, the trade, I mean, how does that work? Like how much final product or syrup do you get out of gallons of sap? Well, it's all based on the, the uh, sugar content of the sap coming out of the woods. And... So my sugar bush is about four miles from here, so I have to truck the sap down to here. And sap, that, so sap coming into the sugar house is about 2%. It goes through a small reverse osmosis system, comes out of that at about 8, 10, maybe on a great day, 12% sugar. Then it goes through a piggyback system. Out of the piggyback, uh, if it goes in at 12%, it comes out at somewhere between 12 or 20 and 24 percent 
and then into the flue pan, and then it's just a continuous boiling until we reach 60%. So in the, in the boiling process, is it almost like a refining it, or what, how do you describe it? Uh, we're just evaporating water. Okay. Just evaporating water, and just tons of it. <laughs> Lots of water. So uh, last year, for example, we brought down 105,000 gallons of sap, and we produced 1,500 gallons of syrup. I'll switch the whole process. I'll send the sap in here and draw the syrup off down there. Why do you reverse the direction? So these three pans, like I said, have, have there's a total of six trays here. That will keep all these trays the same sweetness by oh, gotcha. reversing the flow. This tank holds 60 gallons. When this gets about three quarters full, then I start pumping it into the back room and start the filtering process. And when I filter in the back, it either goes directly into a barrel or it goes into the finishing unit where I bring it back up to 200 degrees, run it back through the filter press and into the canning unit so that we can can syrup. How is it, the canning process, does it go directly, is it from a tube right into cans? Or it, So there's canning tips okay. on the canning unit that go directly into the jar. Wow, this is a really cool operation. It's just, it, it's a bit complex, but there's a reason for it all. Yeah, it's, it's, and it's taken 30-some years to get to this point. Like I said, we started out with a single pan. And you started in the, you said late 80s, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. A single two-foot by three-foot pan, open. And this was in the Catskill Mountains, right? In no, New York. No, that was in that the was 80s. Here. here. That was here, and I used that same pan when I was about 10 and 12 or 14 years old, yeah. something like that, yeah. Man, appreciate you sharing how things work. It, it <laughs> makes me really appreciate it. You know, next time I have syrup, I'm going to really appreciate it yeah, probably make more. Make sure you get the right stuff. <laughs> There's a lot of syrup out there. <laughs> yeah, and probably a lot are high quality and a lot are low, low quality, right? Uh, well, you know, we try not to, 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 to you know, uh, ping any other sugar makers. But, you know, the sugar bush we're in, we're pretty lucky. It's almost 100% true sugar maple. There's only a little bit of soft maple in the very bottom, and it does make a difference. Oh, really? Okay. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of different, you know, like there's silver maple, there's soft maple, there's hard maple. So a lot depends on your tree stand. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And direction it faces. So, you know, north-facing slope isn't going to be as, produ as good a production as uh, ours is a south west west facing so slope you're getting really more of that daytime heating right yes yeah, yeah. and at night it doesn't matter because at, at night there's matter. no sun yeah, everybody's going to cool down right so yeah. if you can be south or southwest it's probably better yeah i like it because it you know things don't really start to open up till around 10 o'clock in the morning and that gives me time in the morning to get ready for what's going to happen that day so i go out and look at the weather so the trees <laughs> really are that sensitive to uh to cloud cover to oh, temperature abs absolutely yeah yeah and, and the tubing, you know, the, the sap will freeze right up solid in the tubing, but that tubing will heat up pretty fast, too. Oh, um, I see. So let's say it gets down to 23 degrees at night. The sap may freeze in the tubing, but absolutely. then it'll start running? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My daughter actually did a, a science test one year for, in high school where she took some sap tubing, put it in a box that was painted black, covered it with glass, and ran water through it. And the temperature reached 160 degrees inside the box. Really? Just using solar radiation heating, yeah. 
I mean, the tubing was coiled inside the box, but still, that's a pretty significant, you know, 160 degrees is pretty toasty. Yeah, that is really toasty. And those would be tubes in the sun. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, up in the woods, as soon as the, as soon as the sun comes out, the tubing will start absorbing that radiation. And, yeah. Is it, what color is the tubing? Is it usually like a, um, a darker color? All of mine is green. And I use black for my main lines. I have a few gray main lines. I have to be pretty neutral because most of my sugar bush is on federal land. And they want uh, neutral colors. Yeah. So no orange, no bright blue. <laughs> Something kind of to, to blend in. Donald, appreciate you taking time. I learned yeah, a lot no here. Yeah. I really okay. appreciate yeah. you sharing your knowledge. <laughs> Hey, nice talking with you. On this episode of the GeoTrek podcast, we were visiting with Don Gale from Twin Maple Sugar Works in Lincoln, Vermont. He's been producing maple syrup since the 1980s. We learned a lot about the sensitivity of maple syrup production to changes in weather and climate. A few housekeeping notes after we did the audio recording, we shot a little bit of a video clip over by a shelf, which had a lot of small bottles on it with maple syrup of different color. And Don explained to me that those colors really have to do with the different types of syrup. So generally colder weather will produce syrup of lighter color and lower bacteria levels, whereas warmer weather will produce a darker syrup with higher bacteria. Now, just to keep in mind, these are natural bacteria that occur in the syrup and some people actually prefer the flavor of the darker syrup with the higher bacteria that come from the warmer weather. Another housekeeping note, I had forgotten to ask Don about the 1998 ice storm and if it impacted his operations. I emailed him after our audio recording and he replied, Hal, the good Lord was with me on that one. The ice was below 800 feet in elevation and above 2,500 feet. He continued that his sugar bush is from 1,600 to 2,400 feet in elevation. So he really escaped damage with that. And that's a reminder, ice storms are often very localized. Often the worst ice storm from glazing, freezing rain are deep in the valley. Sometimes, though, we'll actually see it at the ridge tops. In 1998, it was both of those, but his sugar bush was kind of in the middle and escaped a lot of that damage. He also mentioned that windstorms are probably the biggest threat from limb and tree damage. So he faces more threats from windstorms as opposed to ice storms. He loses a few trees every year from wind, mostly beech and maple trees. Um, he mentioned as well that the Forest Service actually considers his area that he sugars in as a monoculture. There are so many maple trees. There are also some beech, ash, and birch sprinkled in the woods, but mostly what he has are maples. Uh, Don, thank you so much for coming on GeoTrek and for sharing your passion for maple syrup production. And just, uh, it was really enjoyable to meet with you as well. I loved your, your sense of humor and your, your outlook on life was really refreshing as well. You know, the last thing I did when Don and I finished our recording was I bought two quarts of maple syrup for Christmas presents. You can do the same. Just do a web search for Twin Maple Sugar Works and they'll actually ship to you uh, in your location. Again, it was really great to hear from Don, who's a producer of maple syrup, to hear his expertise and knowledge of it. I felt more knowledgeable about the product and understanding uh, the extreme care he takes to produce a very high quality product. Hey, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, maple syrup and weather and climate was not even on my radar when I was traveling around the Northeast. I just kind of stumbled upon this topic. I like to do that as I'm traveling. If you have a topic that you'd like to hear me cover, give me a shout out. Let me know about a topic that's related to extreme weather, disaster science, or climate science that you'd like to hear about right here on GeoTrek. To our faithful listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next episode of the GeoTrek podcast. 